Uh, last week was an important week uh, in the Christian calendar. So as we head closer and closer to spring, as Easter sort of uh, begins to appear on the horizon, it's a little more than a month away, a good chunk of the global church enters into a period of fasting and repentance known as Lent. So last week uh, we had uh, what's called Fat Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday or Pancake Tuesday or Mardi Gras, which is sort of this last hurrah, this last sort of indulgence, and then Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, where many churches hold a service which is designed to remind people of their own mortality. It goes through verses like the one we find in the bulletin today. Uh, From dust we came, to dust we will return, and it marks a time of entrance into this period of Lent, and that makes today, of course, the first Sunday of Lent. So I'm curious, uh, maybe by show of hands, how many of you have at some point in your lives, at some point in your Christian walks, taken this period of Lent and observed it by giving something up intentionally over this 40 days? So I see a few hands out there for sure. Um, This is something that some of us do, but it's not something that's really been sort of recognized uh, or pushed heavily uh, in a lot of circles. In, in, In my life growing up, my grandma was certainly the most... Um, observant of uh, Lent. She's the most consistent Lent observer. She know, I know these days uh, she gives up uh, social media and uh, computer and phone games. She loves her words with friends. And so it's a tough thing for her for 40 days. But she gives that up and she takes time uh, to refocus herself on Jesus, to prepare her heart for Easter. And I do some years and I don't other years. I'm not uh, consistent with it. But over the years, I've given up lots of different things. I've given up uh, food-related things, uh, like desserts or sweets, or, or I've given up all drinks other than water. I've given up television over the years. I've given up social media. I've given up coffee. Uh, in fact, I remember years ago, um, there was this big conspiracy uh, that was floating around, at least in Steinbeck, where I was. There was this big thing about Tim Hortons being very anti-Christian because they would bring out, roll up the rim, right as Lent was kicking into gear. And it was sort of seen as this aggressive attack on our values uh, to bring roll up the rim and right as people were starting to give up coffee uh, for Lent. It was this way to make Christians trip up and fail in their fasts. Um, But something interesting about Lent is that it's not mentioned in the Bible anywhere. It doesn't show up in Scripture. It's a tradition that developed afterwards, uh, years afterwards. But it is a very old practice. Lent is mentioned probably first. The first mentions that we see of it are by early church fathers, maybe 100 or 200 years after Jesus. But at that time, it was just a short period. It was a couple of days long. And it was very specifically designed to be a period of training uh, and preparation for baptism. And the part of Christian history where Lent was sort of solidified as a practice was at what's called the Council of Nicaea in 325. So one of the very significant things that came out of that was the Nicene Creed, which uh, some of you have probably heard of, which is this sort of unifying document of beliefs. But it's also the first place that we see Lent mentioned as sort of a 40-day period of time. And at that point still, it was meant for baptismal candidates who were going to get baptized on Easter and who were going to go through this process of preparation. But it very quickly grew to encompass the whole church as people realized that there was value in taking intentional time to prepare for Easter, to engage in this sort of self-denial and recognize their dependence on God. And so typically what would happen is observers would 
uh, abstain from all meat or fish or animal products, and they would eat one meal a day at supper time. That's how Lent worked originally, and that, of course, has changed and morphed over the years, and many people today who observe Lent pick something specific to give up, and it can be all sorts of things that we've talked about. Uh, the way that Lent has been celebrated uh, has shifted and changed over the years, but the purpose has always remained the same, which is self-examination, looking inward, and repentance, uh, and refocusing on God. And so as you've entered into this season, I thought it would be a good thing to take this Sunday and focus on the piece of Scripture, which very much for us as Christians models... Lent. It's the thing that Lent is modeled after. And I think for most of us, when we think about 40 days fasting, uh, focus on God, our minds pretty quickly jump to the story of Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness, this example of what we're called to do during Lent. Uh, this idea of self-denial and a wrestling with temptation and a recognition of uh, the sovereignty, the lordship of God. And it's a pretty short little passage that we find. Uh, coming out of Ruth, which we just went through over the last four weeks, which really takes its time working through story and conversation. Here it feels like things kind of move at a bit of a breakneck pace. But as we work through this today, my hope is that you'll see how deep and rich this passage is and what it can teach us about our own human nature, about our journeys with temptation, about the nature of Satan, the deceiver, and how he works in our lives. And maybe most of all, learn about our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, and how Jesus models that for us. So we're going to start off by reading the passage of Scripture. The story is found in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. It's also briefly referenced in Mark. Uh, but today we're going to look at the story as it's found in Matthew. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. So I invite you to turn with me uh, there if you have your Bibles. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. This is what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So it's this sort of short and sweet passage, but there is a lot that is packed into here. And so we're going to address four main questions as we walk through this. First, what does this passage tell us about who Jesus is, about the character of Jesus? Second, what does this tell us about the nature of Satan, the tempter, the deceiver? Third, what does this tell us about temptation, about how temptation can work in our lives? And then fourth, what does this tell us about our relationship with God? 
So first, we're looking at Jesus. What does this tell us about who Jesus is? So what I want to do is start by giving you a little bit of context. I had a Bible college professor who would often say that when we're reading the Bible, it's like we're reading someone else's mail. There are particular things here that are written to particular people at a particular time in a particular context, and they are God-breathed, and they are useful for us, and it's meant for us, but it's good to take some care in how we approach these books and these letters. It's good to take some effort to understand what's the context here? What is the relationship between these people as these books are being written? Um, we've talked before about how every gospel in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each have their own purpose, their own reason for existing. They're not just the same story four times. They each come at things from a bit of a different angle, for a bit of a different audience, for a bit of a different purpose. And so when we get all these four accounts together, it gives us sort of a well-rounded, holistic view of Jesus' life. And so whenever we're digging into a gospel, it's nice to take a very quick step back and go, What's the big picture question that this author is driving at? What is Matthew trying to communicate uh, in his scripture, in his gospel? Who is he talking to? So Matthew's audience was Jewish people, people who knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. And his goal was working through the Old Testament to try and establish Jesus as the Messiah, as God's one true son, and heir, the true and perfect king and lord and ruler, as someone who is bringing in a new kingdom. So everything in the book is set up with that audience, with that goal in mind. Right from the beginning, Matthew starts off with a genealogy to tie Jesus into the line of David, to sort of connect him to these Old Testament kings, to connect him to Old Testament prophecy, to legitimize his reign uh, in that way. And so when we look at the story of Jesus in the wilderness we can see Matthew very intentionally setting up parallels between the Old Testament that his audience and readers would have been very familiar with and referencing those Old Testament histories. In doing that, he's very clearly setting up who Jesus is, the identity and the nature of Christ. And there's more here than we're even going to get into in the sermon, but I want to set up uh, two sort of parallels that we see that teach us about Jesus and Jesus' nature. So first is this, Jesus is the new man, the new Adam, stepping into uh, the universal story of humanity. And second, Jesus is the true son, stepping into the Israelite story. So the first, uh, the story here uh, intentionally parallels the story of Genesis, of Adam. Matthew is drawing the parallel and going where man has failed before, where humanity failed Jesus, the Son of God, the one true king, succeeds. Both Adam and Jesus are tempted to eat food apart from God's will. Adam with the apple and Jesus with the bread. And Adam fails and Jesus perseveres. Both of them are presented with a distortion of God's will, with this idea of God, if God is really who he says he is, or if you are really who you say you are, or if your relationship is really what you say it is, then this must be true. Then what's happening doesn't make sense. Then you would be able to do this thing. Does God really want what's best for you, or is he just holding back? And again, where Adam falls prey to this doubt, Jesus holds strong. Jesus truly understands his relationship with his father. But the parallels are very clear, and we're going to touch on those a little bit more as we go on. Uh, second, the story speaks to the journey of Israel in exile. So Israel, interestingly enough, is explicitly referred to as God's son. 
in Exodus 4.22, God gives a message to Moses to say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So Israel understood themselves. Their identity was uh, a son of God. And so God's son Israel is led through the wilderness for 40 years for a time of testing. God's son Jesus is led through the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, And really significant, when Jesus references scripture here, which he does in response to each of the devil's temptations, he goes back to Deuteronomy. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8, which are both passages of scripture that are specifically referencing or talking about Israel's testing. In fact, specifically talking about how Israel has missed the mark in being tested, how they have been tested and found wanting, how they failed to live up to the standards God has set. And so the context is that Israel is being called out for missing the mark uh, and missing the standards of being God's son, God's firstborn. But Jesus hits that mark perfectly as he is tested here. The last little parallel between Jesus and Israel uh, is that Israel's exile begins immediately after they flee Egypt and pass through the waters of the Red Sea, which Paul refers to powerfully uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. He calls it Israel's baptism. And Jesus, in the chapter before this, immediately before he goes out into the wilderness, is baptized. Um, and this is really, really strong sort of symbolism that Matthew has set up. It's not just sort of cute information. Everything that's being done here is getting the audience tuned in to see the relationship of Jesus and God as a father and son relationship, like Adam and God or like Israel and God. And that's the relationship that's being tested, the relationship of a loving father and his child. When Jesus is baptized, God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased and that's exactly the relationship the devil attacks. If you are really the son of God, then why are you starving? Then why, then why don't you test God and see if it's really true? Then why don't you claim what's yours? So we see Jesus held up as son. And that begins to set up for us how we think about our relationship with God. Uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit. First, I want to get to the second point. What does this tell us about the nature of Satan? Uh, the account here in Matthew, as well as the one in Luke's Uh, and uh, Luke and Mark, uh, they don't give us any detail as to exactly how this temptation worked with Jesus. They don't give any description of the devil, of Satan, of this deceiver. So a lot of classic art depicts the devil as an almost cartoonish villain with kind of bat wings and cloven hooves and horns. Sometimes you see images that depict the devil in this situation as an angel of beautiful light and cunning, Uh, Or maybe the devil slithered onto the scene as a snake from the garden again. We don't know uh, how this happened. It's possible that the devil showed up to Jesus exactly the way that he usually shows up to you and I, as as a voice inside of our heads, as a push in the wrong direction, as a sense of self entitlement or self righteousness or anger or frustration that begins to twist our thoughts away from God's will and toward our own. The devil also seems to like showing up when we're at our weakest or most susceptible to temptation. He doesn't come at day 7 or day 20 or day 30. He comes after the 40 days of fasting when Jesus is at his hungriest, at his most susceptible. One of the most striking pieces of art for me shows Jesus alone in the wilderness, 40 days in, starving, exhausted, sitting on a rock, 
No one else didn't frame, but clearly deeply wrestling with the devil. You see it in his eyes and you see it in his hands. There is a battle going on, wrestling with temptation, staring hungrily at that rock in the foreground of the painting. So we don't know how this all happened, what it looked like. All we know is that Satan, the deceiver, was there. And we know the nature of their conversation. And sometimes I think we expect that the devil's going to come into our lives, into our minds, and announce himself in some big dramatic way, that the temptations are going to be obvious with sort of flashing neon signs, do this wrong or go in this direction, that there's going to be some sort of trap laid out that's easy to spot. But the trick that Satan uses here in Scripture, uh, and the trick that he uses in our own lives, is, is much, much more deceptive. It's an easy trap to fall into. And it's something we have to be aware of as Christians. And to dig into it a little bit, what I want to talk about is uh, cows. And I apologize to anyone here who's a vegetarian. Uh, maybe this thing is uh, the reason you're a vegetarian. Um, but I'll go into this a little bit. Years ago, there was a scientist who was an animal behavior expert, uh, specifically with livestock. And she was actually commissioned by meat plants to figure out how to kill cows with the least amount of stress. Because if a cow is stressed when it dies, that can trigger the release of hormones and things that downgrade the quality of the meat. And so these companies paid this money, this, this lady huge money to visit these slaughterhouses uh, and advise. So I'm going to read a little bit from the article that I found on this. It says this, The secret was the insight that novelty distresses cows. A slaughterhouse then, in order to keep the cattle relaxed, should remove anything from the sight of the animals that isn't familiar. The real problem is novelty. If dairy cattle are used to seeing bright yellow raincoats slung over the gates every day when they enter a milking parlor, there'd be no problem. It's the animal who's seeing a bright yellow raincoat slung over the gate for the first time who's going to balk. Workers shouldn't yell at cows, she said, and they should never use cattle prods because they are counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them, don't unnerve them, and above all, don't hurt them, at least until you slit their throats at the end. Along the way, this scientist devised a new technology that has revolutionized the way that big slaughter operations work. In this system, the cows aren't prodded off the truck, but they're led in silence onto a ramp, and they go through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch, and the cattle continue down a ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. They don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly lifts them gently upward, and then in a twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. They are transitioned from livestock to meat, and they're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. Hmm. So that principle and that concept is not unique to cattle or to livestock. It's true of us as well. The Bible uses this imagery several times. Psalm 44 in Jeremiah many times talks about Israel as lambs being led to slaughter. In the book of Proverbs, a father describes to his son the slow progress, the slow creeping in of a sexual affair. And he talks about this as a, a bird being trapped or an ox being led to the slaughter. Later in Proverbs, there's a plea to rescue those who are stumbling to the slaughter. The way the devil most often works in our lives is slow and subtle 
and gradual and intelligent. It's not sudden, it's not random, it's not big or flashy, it starts small. And it works with pieces of truth, it works with pieces of real need inside of us, and it builds from there. And when we look at Satan's interaction with Jesus, what he constantly does is question Jesus' identity over and over again. If you really are the Son of God, then surely this must be true. If you really are the Son of God, then Scripture itself says that this should be true. But it sure doesn't look true to me. You're the Son of God, and yet you're hungry? Does God really want what's best for you? Does God really care about you? If you were really the Son of God, wouldn't he be providing for your needs that you feel so strongly right now? Wouldn't he be protecting you? The nature of Satan is that he works subtly and slowly and with questions, and he undermines our understanding of who God is, and he takes real God-given needs, real God-given truths, and twists them and distorts them to become about us rejecting God's plan for our lives and God's promises for us, rejecting God's authority and taking things into our own hands. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Third, we want to talk about the nature of temptation. So Jesus was far too smart. And I'd like to believe that we are far too smart to be tempted by the idea of overt evil for the devil to show up and say, Hi, I'm the devil. I'm here to tempt you. And so what Satan the deceiver does again is, is come disguised as our own thoughts and our own ideas. And in this passage, as Jesus is preparing for his ministry, as he's getting ready to launch into the work that he has come to earth to do. He's looking ahead at this long road before him, and Satan gives him good ideas. Three good ideas. Who could disagree that these are good things? Um, Brian Zond uh, has a book called The Unvarnished Jesus that looks at these three ideas in the context of Jesus' larger ministry as a part of the larger story that Matthew is telling. Uh, and he comes away with a bit of a different take on these than I'd heard before. It's certainly not the only way to look at it, and maybe some of you will hear this and, and feel it's a bit of a stretch or a little bit out there. That's okay, but I sort of appreciated the fresh eyes that he used to approach this scripture, and so I want to look at it from that perspective today. So the first temptation is this. Feed everyone, but forget about God. It's the temptation to make the kingdom of God, to make... Jesus' role to make our role here purely and only about social justice, only about reaching out to the people around us, about helping those in need. And you say, wait, Jesse, weren't you just weeks ago talking about that passage from Isaiah where God says that true fasting is, uh, is providing a wanderer with shelter and clothing the naked and setting the oppressed free? Doesn't Jesus himself say that whatever we do for him, for the least of these we do for him? And that's absolutely true. We are called into a life of discipleship, which involves active service and servant leadership and care for the weak. And we're called to love our enemies like our neighbors and to love our neighbors like ourselves. But Jesus also calls us to eat and to drink of him, to taste and see that he is good. We cannot properly fulfill the second commandment if we skip past the first commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a good idea. Feed everyone. But inside of it is this sin to leave God behind, to forget about God. The second good idea, and the devil quotes scripture for this one, the second good idea is to persuade everyone, but to eliminate faith. The devil takes Jesus up to the top of the temple, to the top of God's symbol for his power and might and sovereignty on earth, and says, if you're really God's son, then jump. God will catch you. He's your protector. If God is really your protector, 
prove it. And it's a great idea. It seems like it anyways. How many times haven't we thought this ourselves? God, if you're real, just prove it. Just make it clear. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, show yourself. But as much as this can seem good and right and reasonable, it carries this deep error in it that says you can bypass or get rid of faith. The capacity to believe or to doubt is what creates space for us to be in real authentic relationship with God and not just robots who are controlled by him. Frederick Buchner says famously, if there were no room for doubt in Christianity, there would be no room for me. And so it's this great idea. Prove it. That nonetheless undermines God's will for our lives and our created purpose to be in a real, honest relationship with him based on faith. The third temptation, the third good idea, is the most subtle one. It's the temptation to take power, to liberate people from their bondage, to invite all into the kingdom, but to kill the bad guys, to bypass the cross and the suffering and instead reach for the sword, to reach for the, the, the ring of power from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. That ultimate power, that temptation to let the means justify the end. But Jesus understood deeply that the means are just as important as the end. The means are a part of the end because they are what become the end. By this interpretation, looking at Matthew 4, Jesus equates that to justify violence by looking at a perceived good is equivalent to worshiping the devil. To zoom out on this a little bit or make it more general, for us to grab power on our own, for us to take control, to skip sacrifice, to skip servanthood and head straight to victory, to try and skip the race and expect the prize is a trick of the devil. The journey matters. It matters. The sacrifice matters. God has a plan for us, and his plan is better than ours, despite what it might feel like in the moment. And we must not let ourselves be tempted to believe otherwise. Uh, Russell Moore sums up the choice that Jesus made beautifully and simply. He says this, Jesus refuses to exchange end-time exaltation by the Father for a right-now exaltation of a snake. Jesus refuses to exchange end-time exaltation by the Father for right-now exaltation of a snake. And so as we close, we have one more question to address. What does this tell us about our relationship with God? In this passage, the through line here with these attacks, the pattern that we see with these temptations is an attack on Jesus' sonship, on his trust in his heavenly Father, it's a seed of doubt. If that were really true, why are you hungry? And it's the same thing we see over and over and over again through Scripture. Adam and Eve dealt fundamentally with the same three main issues. The snake says to Adam and Eve, you may eat of any tree. And to Jesus in Matthew, you may eat by changing the stones to bread. You can fulfill your hunger. He says to Adam and Eve, if you listen to me, if you eat this fruit, you will not die. He says to Jesus, if you jump, you won't even hurt your foot. You can live without God. He says to Adam and Eve, if you eat this, you will be like God. He says to Jesus, you can have all the world's kingdoms. You can have all the power you want without God. There are many new issues we have in today's world, many new problems, access to the internet, unprecedented amounts of free time, modern technology, 
Modern life brings about new challenges, new issues, new problems, but no new sins, no new temptations. Paul promises us that no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. And Jesus, who made himself common to man, who made himself one of us, experienced these things in the desert. So what his journey teaches us about sin and our relationship with God is that every single sin in our lives, every single thing that we do that separates us from God, fundamentally at its core, comes down to a rejection of God as a loving, trusting father, and instead thinking of him as a rival, as someone who is withholding, as someone who can't be trusted. Every sin. We have needs. We have real needs. We have God-given needs. The need for intimacy, the need for food, the need for acceptance, for safety, for respect, for belonging. These are not bad needs. They're given to us by God. But when we give in to those needs outside of God's design for our lives, when we make a choice that says, actually, I know better. My father doesn't know what's best for me. My father doesn't want what's best for me. I do. That's the breakdown in the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve with hunger, with a desire for food. That's a God-given thing, but it breaks down when they lose trust in God. When Satan, the deceiver, whispers this idea, the same thing he whispers into our own ears, that maybe God doesn't understand, that maybe God doesn't love, that maybe God is holding something back. And that's when sin enters the world, when they allow that lie to take hold. Maybe your father isn't truly good. And so whether you're participating in Lent or not, whether you're specifically engaged in the process or the... uh, the exercise of giving something up. As we begin to approach Easter, as we walk towards, travel down this road towards Easter weekend, towards the victory of Jesus' death and resurrection over sin and over death, I encourage you to prayerfully consider who God is to you in your life. There's a quote by A.W. Tozer. We just talked about it in baptismal class a couple of weeks ago. And it says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's true because when we think about God, what we think about determines how well we are prepared to not listen to those whispers, but instead to rest securely in our Heavenly Father who has a plan for our lives, who gives generously, who is a perfect Father. And so I pray that every day, We will grow as individuals and as a community in our understanding of how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is, that our lives will continue to be formed by the new Adam, by the perfect Son, who has laid out his life as an example for us to follow. When Jesus was on the cross, once more he heard that question from Satan echoed in the crowds, who said, save yourself, come down from that cross, if you really are the Son of God. But Jesus remained faithful, maintained trust in his heavenly Father, and in his death that day, and in his resurrection three days later, fully conquered sin and death and ushered in a new kingdom, a new way of being, a new closeness with our heavenly Father, who now through his Holy Spirit lives in us. What an incredible promise and an amazing God. Amen.